is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Slaykoff, an incoming assistant professor at Sacramento State University. This is episode 27 of Untenured Tracks. because I read a piece um, by Elizabeth Yardley and it was amazing about the serial podcast Mm -hmm. and I reached out to her and although she was not able to work with me on a project um, she really did help me formulate this idea um, for a domestic violence podcast project so basically I looked at five different seasons of true crime podcasts that focused on one case. Mm-hmm. As you know, there's some podcasts that each episode's a new case, and then yeah. there's some where the whole season's one case. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do more of a deep dive, so I did five different seasons where the case is about a domestic violence homicide or a domestic violence situation where the, somebody is missing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm in the process of data analysis now, so it's pretty early on, early days, but I did all of the transcription myself Mm -hmm. so if you've ever done (laughs) that's where I think maybe I was a little overzealous because it's definitely a lot and it took months to actually do Um, but now I'm in the analysis phase and definitely what I thought was most surprising so far is that actually the podcast did an amazing job of describing domestic violence and I think that I probably have not only a paper about what I found but a teaching criminology or teaching criminal justice with podcast paper too because I think they're really really good rich teaching resources and yeah so I'm pretty excited about that I went in with kind of despairing thinking that it was going to be a horrible representation but in actuality it was actually a very good representation of domestic violence Mm -hmm. including like religious abuse and financial abuse things that are very rarely talked about Mm -hmm. are actually in the podcast so I was excited about that. That's what I'm working on right now. It's it's like my everyday right this second. Mm-hmm. Um, we, Andy and I, before the podcast started talking, we talked a little bit about my love for Marvel, and I'm currently <laughs> wearing a Marvel shirt, um, but also working on um, having to do with the comic book realm a little bit. Uh, my friend that I met on Twitter, actually, Jason Smith and I are working on a piece about Watchmen, the HBO series. Um, talking about the way it, it envisions justice or in some ways revisions justice. So that's very, very new as well. We um, just did some data collection for that, and now we're meeting next week to talk next steps. So those are the two things I'm most excited about because they're I'm branching out a little bit. I'm much, I'm much more of a print 
journalism person. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of branching out to other mediums. So I'm excited about that. Very cool. Um, are you able to say which podcast you use for the study, or is that something that... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I use five different um, seasons, like I mentioned. The one I didn't do is Serial, because that's the most written about podcasts so far, is Serial Season 1. Yeah. Um, but the fi- there's five podcasts. The first one is called The Cold Podcast, about the Susan Powell case. That one, I have to admit, is my favorite out of the five, because it's so well done. Um, the other one is Dirty John, which is another one that has now been made into a TV show that I have not seen because I did not want to <laughs> impact myself <laughs> yeah. with this research. Yeah. Um, the other one is called um, Over My Dead Body, and there's one called Someone Knows Something. And then the last one is called Teacher's Pet, and the Teacher's Pet has become really big in Australia and there's been a bit of a break in the case since the podcast came out, actually. Yeah. So um, I tried to do um, U.S. and Canadian and Australian podcasts, so I got a good mix there, which yeah. I'm excited about. Uh, yeah, I asked because I wanted to know specifically if you listened to Someone Knows Something or not, because if you hadn't, I was going to plug that one. <laughs> yes, yeah, Someone Knows yeah. Something Season 2, the one about Cheryl Shepard. Yep, yeah. Yeah, that's the one that's in, um, that was actually the last one I added, and mm-hmm. I'm glad I did because that case is very different than the other four, um, because of her past as a dancer, that comes mm-hmm. up a lot, yeah. and it's... I mean, it's not surprising the way that um, women who do any sort of work um, having to do with dancing, uh, you know, it it definitely sees some negative portrayals of her compared to the other four. Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely something that will be very interesting to write about because, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a dancer, but it's a constant theme throughout the podcast. Yeah. And uh, just coincidentally, this is two episodes in a row now where someone knows something is coming up. So the person who I interviewed last, whose episode will be coming out a week from yesterday, I think, um, uh, Lorna Ferguson, um, she does research on uh, missing people. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my most recent project that I published was actually about the missing white woman syndrome. So more about the media take on missing people and how missing people are portrayed in in the media, specifically mm-hmm. the print media. So yes, I know her work and it's awesome. I <laughs> I really like missing person stuff too. I, I don't know, I'm kind of that person that actually really likes everything. Like I there's I'm really passionate about all my projects, which sometimes can be bad because I'm juggling a lot. But at the same time, I'm really looking forward to summer because I can sit down and really deep dive into the things that I care about and move them forward. Yeah. And also develop several new projects. <laughs> yes. I'm, it's funny. Like, I've, I've told myself I'm not going to go on to anything that I'm not passionate about. And I actually legitimately am passionate about all of it. So at least I didn't break my own rule. But um, yeah, I think and honestly, a lot of these collaborations have come from Twitter, which is really crazy. I mean, it's a it's a new era. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really wild. I mean, I, I can remember when I started my Twitter account and people thought it was weird, like, mm-hmm. um, and I like, I was like searching for people with just like criminology in their bio and, and right. it was me in like England <laughs> and now it's yeah. like this huge industry and I, I couldn't do my job without it. It's, it's bizarre. Um, and then yeah, just... it really is. And people like, I just, I've actually been on for less than a year, which people are usually surprised by. 
um, coming up on a year in April, but I was just looking for more community and Mm -hmm. being in my first year on the tenure track, I was like, man, it would be awesome to connect with people at a similar place. Um, in their career and same as you that's like the big trick that people ask me about is how did you find so many people um, I started following people that had criminology or media criminology domestic violence like those are the things mm-hmm. I searched and those were the people I followed in because of the similar interests mm-hmm. they followed me back I mean so mm-hmm. it was it was definitely a little work intensive at the beginning but um, <laughs> I find that because we're all interested in similar things it's a very very engaging community that yeah. we're a part of. So, and obviously that's how we connected too. Yep. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think everybody, everybody who's been on this podcast, I, I found on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. It's working out really well. Um, so you had mentioned, uh, potentially writing like a teaching CJ or teaching crim article about the podcast part of it. And so as somebody who uses, podcast in class too i've used i mean the first season of serial is like a go-to um right like i've taught that one enough times now that i know like which episodes the students are going to get upset about and where they're going to get kind of into a lull and i know the fights that are going to happen about jay and and everything and we don't need to relitigate (laughs) serial here we can be here for the next three hours um but uh so how do you how do I want to ask this? Mm. How do you see podcasts as like a, a way to benefit teaching or like a way to supplement think, what we're doing? So because I teach media and crime, so much of my outside projects are about, you know, dissecting a piece of media and mm-hmm. doing a deep dive. I think of course, podcast is not radio and radio is not podcasts, but there are definite overlaps. And I think that it's a piece of media that I'll be very honest that I don't focus on a lot in my teaching because you know, radio is viewed as older, and even though they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, for the Cold Podcast, for example, they do a masterful job of explaining how the abuse often starts off small and quiet and how it can grow over time. It's usually not just one day they're in an abusive relationship. Um, it's a small buildup over time, and the financial abuse and the religious abuse are huge in that podcast. And I think that students just are not usually as clear about that. What they view as abuse is physical abuse, which, of course, is a big part of of many abusive relationships. But Mm. financial abuse and this pressure, you know, um, to go to church and to be told you're a bad person if you don't go to church. And all of those things come out in the cold podcast in a really interesting way Mm -hmm. um, that I think a lot of students don't realize can also be very abusive um, emotionally to the person. So more of just kind of exposing them to new long form pieces of media that do a really good job of, of kind of showing some of these lesser understood topics. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I view it as being a benefit Um, I also think that a final project could be made out of any of these podcasts about the basically the beginning of the relationship to the end, because they all start that way, right, about the beginning when it's the honeymoon phase. And whether whether that's the right technique to tell this kind of story, I don't know, or if it's just because it's chronological. Um, But that's something that I think about. So Mm -hmm. I would definitely have to think about it a little bit more. But 
I think that they are really good teaching tools. And I'm, I would love to hear how you use cereal because that's something that I've been thinking about doing as well. But so many of yeah. my students have already listened to it uh-huh. that I try to give them something new so that we're all experiencing it for the first time. Yeah. Um, so the last time I taught cereal, um, uh, not as many students hadn't heard it before as I had thought. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's usually been like maybe five or so who've heard it. Right. Um, but most of them haven't. And I, it might just be something that's unique to my population of students. Um, and so what I have them do, what I've had them do in that class is, um, I will make a discussion like thread for each episode and they have to, they have to post like a, like a reaction to it. Um, that can't be a summary of just like Jay did this and Adnan said this. Um, they have to kind of respond to how Sarah presents the story. Um, (laughs) I set it up to them as, you know, it's come out since the podcast aired that Sarah um, maybe took a little bit of artistic license and and, right. and picked and, and chose what she was going to present and how she was going to present it. Um, and then, uh, so that that's a way to get them emotionally invested because they can't just regurgitate stuff, right? Right. Um, and invariably, they get mad at Jay. Um, mm-hmm. by the end of the series, they despise Jay Wild. Um, right. and then on their final exam, I will ask them, um, did Adnan do it? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and I, dissertation note. <laughs> I love, I love asking, I love asking questions like that. So my, my students in my juvenile delinquency class are taking a test, their midterm tomorrow. And I make them, I have them watch a documentary about Kip Kinkle, who was a school shooter in the late nineties. And, um, it's a, it's a very old episode of frontline, but it, it holds up really well. And right. their, their question is, uh, whose fault is it <laughs> that, that Kip right. shot his parents and, um, shot up his school? Um, so I'd like questions like that because it, it forces them to try to put some kind of logic to whatever emotional reaction they're having. Um, right. and with serial, um, uh, maybe 90% of them are, are pretty sure that Adnan didn't do it. Um, I've had students in the past who I think either don't like the project or, um, don't like me or whatever, and, and choose to take a more of a contrarian, uh, approach to the assignment. And we'll just like triple down on the fact that he's guilty. Like clearly he's guilty. Um, Jay said that he did it. (laughs) he was convicted. Obviously he's. I think sometimes people, you know, and I actually honestly was guilty of this for a long time is you want to black and white it or, you know, this is so clearly this or that. And I, in my opinion, it's just not clear. And that's so uncomfortable for the students and Mm -hmm. for, I mean, for anyone listening, if if our standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, then Mm -hmm. there's so many questions throughout that podcast that you have to ask yourself regardless, um, you know, did the state actually make its case is the question, right? And Mm -hmm. I, I could totally see that. I mean, it's it's something I just had a conversation with a colleague about is, you know, growth and discomfort, they come from that gray area. And, like, I feel like I'm constantly pushing my students into that gray area, uh-huh. and there's always pushback, right? Because it is uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And so I've, like, refining that specific assignment over the, the few times I've done it, I, now when I start it, I, I show, um, there's a news clip on youtube um of them announcing hayes disappearance mm, um, okay. because i want them to see her and be able to have right. like a face to put with the victim because 
past classes have um, kind of used her as a little bit of a punching bag, I guess. Um, especially yeah. in the episodes of the podcast where they're talking about her diary. Um, right. and, and she her is this relationship with that guy that she worked yeah, with. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Don. Don yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, she's a high school girl and so she's kind of, she, I mean, has these high school girly sorts of diary like entries and, right. and my students will like, that makes them mad <laughs> that she yeah. didn't write like this. And I don't know what they expect, like a, a very cold and rational, <laughs> <laughs> like or what but yeah, they get they get so mad at her about that and so i've sure. i've had to say like this isn't just fiction right you know a young woman was like was murdered brutally and um we're not we're not doing this to victim blame um right. and then like like you were talking about with the the media part of it um i use it to say you know you guys have spent so much time watching law and order and, and shows like that that i think you've been conditioned to think that every investigation is open and shut and yes. like everything has to play out in a three-act structure <laughs> and real life just isn't like that no um, i mean one of my best friends works for a police department doing um essentially a lot of their online investigations so she does a lot of the like checking people's Facebooks to see if she can triangulate their location and stuff like that. It's fascinating mm -hmm. stuff, but that's something she, we talk about constantly is, you know, this case, yes, it's a huge case, but there are only mm -hmm. three people working on it right now, and they have mm -hmm. ten other cases that they're also in charge of, and it's not for lack of trying that they're mm -hmm. trying to solve it, but there's, like you kind of just said, there's this myth that there's one detective or two on it, it's their full-time job to be on it, yep. and it's going to be open and shut, and it's just very few cities have the resources for that kind yeah. of invest deep dive investigation. And that mm -hmm. case especially is um, complicated because it took them a, a little while to find her. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the elements and weather and all those things can impact the crime scene, too. So mm -hmm. I think that, like I said, going back into um, making students go into the gray area, it makes people really uncomfortable that a crime that seems to be sloppy in some ways can be so hard to solve for so mm -hmm. many reasons. Right. Yeah. Although I think the state would argue they did solve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, have you heard uh, Bear Brook? Are you familiar with that one? I have. I really, really like Bear Brook. It's, it's something I've been thinking about is that there have been a few podcasts that have come out now that have led to breaks in the case. Mm -hmm. And that's another one where I think this renewed attention, you see this new, this interest being brought onto the case. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's a research idea in there somewhere, but I need to <laughs> stay, <laughs> stay on track with what I'm already doing. But yes, Bear Brook was awesome. It's like it in my top so five good. podcasts. Yeah, when the, the the last update that they like when there was the big break in the case, I I was driving to daycare to pick up one of my girls and I was like so into it. I just sat in the parking lot for like 15 minutes to finish the episode before I got oh, yeah. before I got my kids. <laughs> I think there's something so beautiful about podcasts, I'll be honest. Like I remember where I was when I was listening to Serial for the first time and the Casey and Jojo baby 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 <laughs> song starts and <laughs> Uh, that song, I mean, I'm of the age where that song was like the love song of my, I don't even mm -hmm. know now, elementary school, junior high, I don't know, <laughs> I'm dating myself, but um, that song is a song that I know very well, and I just remember thinking about, oh yeah, that song played at our dances too, you know, mm -hmm. I just felt so sucked into Hey's story at that point from her diary, um, mm -hmm. 
So I think it really is this like beautiful medium. Um, unfortunately, I think the podcast cases I am using are very well produced and very well researched. And like I said, do a very good job of, of showing the whole story, but some podcasts of course take more liberties and, um, I, I struggle. Like I, there's a huge group of people who love the podcast that kind of like make fun of some of the cases or like bring a lot of humor to it. But I struggle with that a little bit because we're talking about real people and, yeah, I think there's there's got to be some level of understanding that, you know, victims' families could listen to this or things like that. Yeah, and we, and we won't mention those, but there's one yeah. specifically that I'm thinking <laughs> of that... Andy sued. <laughs> oh, nobody's going to sue me. Um, <laughs> there's, but there is one specifically I was thinking of that I had heard people raving about, and so I, I tried to listen to it, and I made it maybe 10 minutes, Yeah, and it was just, this is... Like I'm okay with a, a certain level of, you know, humor or iconoclasm or whatever, but this is just this is yeah, gross. Yeah, I, I, I will ask you afterward which podcast. Yeah. I think we might be talking about the same one. And yeah, I had the same reaction, and I think yeah, I mean it's probably part of it is that we do this kind of work and so we see the other side of it very uh-huh. much. Like we see the victim side of it, we know what that means for their families. Um, honestly, for the offenders' families as well, mm-hmm. and yeah, so it could be that maybe we're just a little too close to the topic at hand. So it, yeah, we can't it could be. Look at it with that perspective. Yeah, I just I know I think a lot about what teaching this stuff, like the effect that it has on us. You know, mm-hmm. just as faculty in general, right? Yeah, having to teach this real like every day is like something depressing. <laughs> every day, every day there's going to be a student who's like oh my God, I didn't know that. And now like my bubble of innocence has been popped. And then just to right. hear, hear people. And so I feel almost guilty sometimes that my livelihood depends on <laughs> this yeah. stuff. And I would so much rather it not, you know, and then to hear people who are taking so much joy um, and, and raking in a lot of money and right. off of everybody else's suffering. It just seems like not too dissimilar from like, people who work for weapons manufacturers having yeah. like big parties yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's... And I, I'm with you. I mean, <laughs> I have days where I come home and this is why I like to do my writing in the morning is because there are days after teaching that I'm just spent. And yeah. I, I'm somebody who I think has a really strong sense of how students are feeling and I'm constantly yes. scanning and in some of my classes, especially, to be honest, domestic violence, which I've taught twice now, mm-hmm. in that class, it's like I can literally see the recognition in people's faces that either they've experienced something like this or that they know somebody who has. Mm-hmm. And that class is just honestly, in my opinion, probably the most important class that I teach. Mm-hmm. But it's also one of the hardest to teach because I see so many people recognize Things like, to give an example, it's emotional abuse if your partner says they're going to commit suicide if you break up with them. And it's inevitable that people in my class react like they've had it happen to them before and that Mm -hmm. they've stayed in a relationship longer than they should have because of that. Um, And that's, we just talked the other day, what if your best friend came to you and said they're in an abusive relationship? How would you react? And you you know, as the professor, I see people lean back in their chairs and kind of lean away from their group members and clam up. And, you know, you can 
part of it is like, oh, maybe they don't know what they would say or that they've already Mm -hmm. been in this situation. Yeah. And I tell them, you know, I've been in this situation more than once. This is an area that I'm really passionate about. And sometimes you screw up. And when you love the person who's sharing this with you, it's hard not to get let the emotions jump in. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit different. And I said, but the reality is we're talking a lot about how you would react if somebody tells you it's a big part of our class, mm-hmm. how you can be of help to them. Mm-hmm. But when it's somebody that you're really close with, it's hard to do the things that you know you're supposed to do because you just want to grab them and rip them out of the situation. Yeah. And that's just not going to be the right or safe choice in mm-hmm. that situation yeah. um, right away. So that's kind of one of the things I've been grappling with recently in that class, we're reading an awesome memoir called Leaving Dorian. I have to plug it because it's amazing. And actually, the author of the book, Leaving Dorian, is Skyping into our class next week. So nice. the students are so excited about that. Yeah. Um, so before I ask about the book, because I'm, I'm not familiar with it, I've had I've done a similar assignment before, and I've had them write a letter um, to either a real or imagined victim mm-hmm. of any kind of relationship violence. And it's always like really really intense um because the students who have been through that um end up writing you know an entire volume um right and then there's the students who and it's i mean i don't want to stereotype but it's usually the boys and it's usually the athletes who um have never been in a position where somebody would trust them with that information before who have that like oh my god kind of look on their face like (laughs) and and um, theirs are, are just as interesting to read because I think it's probably the first time they've ever actually been forced to reckon with that. Yeah. And I think that really took people aback because we talk about it, you know, throughout the course, honestly, but I actually pointedly asked them while they were in groups, how would you react if your friend came to you tomorrow and, mm-hmm. you know, talk within your groups about it. And like you said, I think that we can talk about it in, you know, me lecturing, but then actually having them talk to other people about what they do is definitely a different scenario. Mm -hmm. And I think for some people, I even heard somebody say, you know, well, I've never been in this position. I don't know that any of my friends would be in this position. And in Mm -hmm. my mind, I'm like, okay, I got to go back to the drawing board that this could happen to anybody. And, you know, (laughs) that there's... um, very, very, you know, wealthy, successful people that can become victims of domestic violence as well. So, um, yeah, just it's it's been really interesting. But, yeah, it was based on that book, Leaving Dorian, that we were having some of these conversations because in the book she goes to a family member asking for a safe place to stay and the family member says no mm-hmm. um, and says, you know, what would the neighbors think if you were here? And it's very, very it's a part of the book that the students absolutely were so they can't wait to ask her about that situation and if she's still in contact with that family member wow so what can you can you just talk a little bit about the book for people like me who have yeah, never absolutely. Who are familiar so the with book it? is called leaving dorian and the author is named linda dinell i actually met her well met her online via my really good friend dr dana raditz at niagara university Um, They've met before because Linda's in the Niagara area Mm -hmm. and they had met at a domestic violence um, based event. So I had mentioned to my friend, um, Dr. Raditz, that I was looking for a book to include in domestic violence. And she was like, if you don't listen to anything else I say, listen to this, use this book. So um, that's how that came to be. But it's called Leaving Dorian, A Memoir of Hope. 
And it's actually about her last 24 hours in that, well, the last like 48 hours in that relationship mm-hmm. um, and before she leaves. And mm-hmm. it's her true story. It's about her leaving with her kids, about her safety plan and all of those things. But it's very well written in the sense that one chapter is the present and then one chapter goes back to the past when they meet. Mm-hmm. So you see it from the very beginning of the relationship to inevitably what's the end of the relationship when she leaves. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she leaves. It is called a memoir of hope, but mm-hmm. it people, many of my students have told me that this is the first book they've finished for a class in a really long time, which mm-hmm. I don't know what that means, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they said that it read a lot like a thriller and yeah. that in some ways it was off putting to them because they said they kept telling themselves that this wasn't real. Like, they didn't want to believe that this level of of um, emotional abuse was real, but it actually helped them in some way to pretend that it was like a novel they were reading versus someone's actual life story, which I think is really interesting and, and powerful and talks about how it can be really uncomfortable to place yourself that close to something that's normally behind closed doors, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. My students, last time I taught it, on their final exam, I always ask them to look back at like highlights and lowlights of the semester so that I can improve. And without fail, Leaving Dorian was a highlight for everyone. So people loved the book. And also that Linda is cool enough to Skype in and talk to us about it and follow up on what happened afterward, um, I think is just super unique. You don't normally get that level of contact with the actual person who went through it and wrote it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's I mean, speaking of new studies, there's something there about, like, empathy development in, mm-hmm. <laughs> in early adulthood that they yes. they couldn't reckon with it if they felt it was, unless they, unless they thought it was fiction. Like, that's... Right. <laughs> and so, I don't know. That's just, it's just strange to me. But I've, I've encountered yeah, similar things. it's an interesting thing that I heard more than once was just, like, I kept telling myself it wasn't real to get through it. Like, I had to pull away. Mm-hmm. And because it is so well written and it is scary to leave. I mean, it is like, you know, it is really scary to leave. Mm-hmm. And she she writes that so beautifully. People were like, I was gripped. I was at the edge of my seat. Like, I forgot that I was even reading a memoir. It felt like I was reading fiction and it helped me to think that. So it was really mm-hmm. interesting that students had that reaction to it this time. And that came up more than once um, when they were talking about it. So can I ask us a, a very basic and probably dumb teaching question? Uh, <laughs> of course, there are no dumb questions, even oh. though I've heard you say, yes, there are. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> before. <laughs> Most of my questions are dumb. So I've, I've struggled trying to teach books um, that aren't just a textbook before, because I, I can't get students to read. Right. Um, so... Um, I think my my biggest frustration has been with Just Mercy, um, which I've assigned a couple of times, yes. and um, I tell them this is one of the most important books you're going to read. This is, I mean, this changed how I teach. This is gonna, this is really vital for those of you who are going into the system to to read this perspective. And then you know the you know the first day that chapter one is like we're set to discuss it, and I say, okay, who's who's got thoughts on the chapter? And and nobody's read it. Um, and it's, yeah. so it's been like immensely frustrating. So how do you get your students to read the books that you're so, assigning? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I tell them like over and over again, hey, the week is coming up where we're doing nothing 
but talking about this book. Mm -hmm. But not only are we talking about it, you're talking about it in small groups. So I said, you're going to be the person that lets down your group and has nothing to contribute if you don't read. And I know that's probably scary or maybe not the right way to go about it, but Mm -hmm. I can honestly say that it appeared that maybe only two people did not read the book. So it seemed like people took me at my word. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is, is that I do occasionally do pop quizzes and I did do one for the first part of the book um, just to make sure people had read and, you know, pretty much every single person like I said, except for two people, got a perfect score on it, leading me to believe that they actually did read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I found that if I say, hey, you're going to be in groups and nobody wants to be in group with somebody who has not read, it's very uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that that actually seems to work. I'm always shocked when students like, I don't know if this is just being so early on my tenure track, but I'm always like surprised when I feel like they're actually listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'll do that. I'll tell them like, Hey, this is coming up. This is really important. You don't want to let down your group members. And it seems like that does seem to come across. Mm-hmm. Whereas other times in the past when I've taught, or even as a PhD student, I feel like they didn't take me at my word as much as they do right now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'll tell them is that, and it's true, is that I do test on the material as well. So if you don't read it, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage when it comes to test time. Mm-hmm. And usually my short answer questions are about the reading. Mm-hmm. So I kind of tell them, like, these are all the reasons why you need to read it for the class. But also, you don't want to be that person that's sitting in the group not mm-hmm. contributing anything. And I go around while they're in their group discussions. I go around and, and sit in for parts of the discussion to each group. So I can always tell who did not do the reading because I'm sitting there listening. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that can make people really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I guess it's in a weird way. I'm like telling them they're going to be shamed by their classmates, which is not true. Nobody would ever shame them, but it is uncomfortable to be in a group and like somebody's not just sitting there, not saying anything. So I'm finding that they don't really want to be that person, right? <laughs> so that's how I've done it. And it seems to have worked really well this semester. But cool. I also think it's helpful that I tell them, you know, on um, the last time I taught this, people said this was a highlight. Like, please take me at my word when I say that. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they have. So I'm hoping that just speaks to the fact that, you know, maybe other students have told them it was a good book or what have you. But just mm-hmm. mercy, I actually... Um, assigned Just Mercy to my graduate class on race because I found out that many of them had not read it yet. And so even though it is definitely something that could be taught in freshman seminars, and it is in many campuses, I had them read it and the graduate students seem to really, really like it. But Mm -hmm. that's a little bit different than undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. He he came, Brian Stevenson came to our campus um, this past April. um, Mm -hmm. And so he... He spent, they set aside like 45 minutes. I think he ended up spending maybe a little over an hour just meeting with undergrads um, to talk about stuff. Um, It was really, yeah, it was really cool. And then he did the talk and then a book signing and all the students got a free book if they hadn't had one already. Um, Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was really. Did you uh, see the movie? I didn't. I didn't yet. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet either. I've been, so one of the weird things about where I live right now is that there's the closest um, movie theater is about 15 minutes away and I'm very spoiled and it used to be like two minutes away. <laughs> so I, <laughs> we joke about it. We have not seen a movie in the theater in quite a while. 
And yeah. like last night we rented uh, Knives Out. Uh-huh. And we talked about going to see it in theaters, but we just never made it. So um, I think that my, our bubble gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the closest theater to me is a couple of blocks from my office, and so mm-hmm. I'll go um, to see like Star Wars or the Marvel movies when they come out. Um, right. Just by, like during the day by myself. Um, hopefully, when campus is shutting down, <laughs> so right. I don't have any students there. Um, although when I saw Endgame, our our chief of public safety walked in, <laughs> in the middle mm-hmm. of the day, <laughs> like. <laughs> Are you sure you're supposed to be here? Uh, yeah, I but, think Endgame is one of the last movies I saw in the theater. Yeah. Honestly, it's been it's been quite a while. I mean, my husband is a saint, and he will go see any criminal justice related movie with me that I want. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and normally I we trade off on what shows we watch too, because if it had it my way, it would all be criminal justice all the time. And Sometimes he's like, you know, I'd really love to walk, watch BoJack Horseman. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did you get interested in media and crime to begin with? So I feel like it's kind of a lifelong thing, but I was a journalism undergrad, actually. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be, at the time, a sports writer. And what's funny is that if I wasn't what I am right now, a professor, I probably would still be a journalist. So I still have the passion for it. But um, I had a professor, his name was Dr. Danny Paskin. He's, to this day, one of the most important people in my academic life. And he had this class um, called Online Journalism, where we had to do a blog. Mm-hmm. every single week for the entire semester and then present it to the class um, at the end of the semester. And so we could choose any topic, but it had to be something you could talk about every week, right? So we go around the class on the day of telling him what we picked, and I'm in the back row. I remember it so vividly because students were like, fashion and and sports and uh, movies. And then you get to me, and I was like, I'm going to do uh, Missing Minority People, and the whole class just kind of like looks at me like, what? Um, so I ended up, I ended up writing the the blog about um, missing people that were not white because uh-huh. I had recognized that so much of the mainstream media was focusing on missing white people. Mm-hmm. If this sounds familiar, that's because this later turned into my master's thesis about the missing white woman syndrome, but. Mm-hmm. This was an undergrad project, and I featured a different, um, it was all girls, a different girl that was a minority, usually black or Latina, and at the end of the semester, I was really, really proud of what I I had created, and my professor at that point, um, Dr. Paskin, I remember it, he said, you know, I think maybe you should be in criminal justice, and... I was like, oh, you know, haha, I'm in my junior year, I'm almost done, I'm not doing that. But it really was like this little seed that got planted. And I went home that weekend to talk to my parents about it. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, I mean, don't you think like all your interests are criminal justice, everything you watch, all the books you read. So it was kind of this weird moment where I feel like my professor saw it more than I did. And recognize that this was like a passion of mine. And I went into his office a couple weeks later and said, will you help me um, 
because I'm first gen, so I had, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I asked him, will you help me get my master's degree materials together? I'm going to try to apply. And he did, and he helped me write the letters, and he looked over my, my statement and everything for me. Mm-hmm. So that's when I made the switch. So really, I've been passionate about journalism for a long time and media uh-huh. for a long time. Um, and, I, you know, it's interesting because people have said – when I first got into my PhD program, some people commented like you need to branch out more, but my advisor was so excited about my interest and was so like, no, this is so cool and you can take it so many different ways. Mm -hmm. This is a very wide net that you can have with this if you're good at it. And now I think you're starting to see that bear out where I'm moving beyond print and I'm moving into TV and podcasts and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I really love it. I mean, I'm passionate about it. And I also have that background in journalism and mass communication, which is helpful for writing more interdisciplinary work. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So how did your classmates react to that final? Do you remember how they reacted to that final presentation? Like, did they ever overcome? they, They were so they were so like congratulatory towards me. Like they were so nice about it. And um, yeah, I mean, they thought it was really cool because it was cases they had never heard of. Right. Mm -hmm. It was, which is really sad, Um, but it was a focus on cases they had never heard of. And I talked about what the missing white woman syndrome was. And, and I asked them like, if you can name, can you name some famous female victims and, you know, the Natalie Holloway's and those kinds of cases Mm -hmm. are pretty instantaneous people can consider them yeah but it's a lot harder to think of a victim of color to be very honest with you and i still do this in my classes today where my students really struggle to name even one um and so yeah i mean they were really really nice about it but i definitely felt like oh maybe i did the wrong thing when i realized that people were doing fashion and sports and other things that are obviously super cool. Um, and probably maybe would have been a little bit easier, but I challenged myself (laughs) to find a new case every week and I was able to do that. So it sounds like you were the last person to realize that you were supposed to be doing this job. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody else knew. I, I feel like maybe that's a first gen thing. I don't know, but like when Danny or Dr. Praskin, Danny to me now, when Danny said that to me, I just remember it as being like, I almost took a little bit of offense. Like I was like, I am excelling in journalism. You know, I, this is where I feel at home, but I think he mm-hmm. realized that there was a next step that could be taken and kind of full circle is that he ended up being the ex officio. I have no idea if I said that right, but he ended <laughs> up being the ex officio member on my dissertation. Uh-huh. So he was, you know, the journalism and mass comm guru on my dissertation committee. So that was super cool. That's that, really cool. You know, all those years later, it was full circle. And I asked him and actually I was the first because their program is undergrad only. I was the first dissertation he ever sat on. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, really, really cool for me nice. to be able to ask him. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm sure he's just over the moon about you. Yes. Um, so have you found, so moving just like back into teaching stuff, um, when you said that, uh, doing the project that there were, you were surprised that there were cases that your classmates had never heard of. Um, it just sparked something because I run into this all the time, right? Because I, I'm moving more towards a case study approach to teaching. Um, I developed a course that's, um, like a a history of crime, like a history of major cases kind of thing. And, I went into it thinking that 
um, at least when we got to like more recent history that the students would be, would be bored and like they would know all of this already and then come to find out that <laughs> they, they, they didn't. And even on like when we talked about very briefly, when we talked about OJ Simpson, that I had students who had no idea about OJ right. or about the trial, about the controversy, about any of it. Yeah. And so I had them do exit interviews for that class. Um, that class was like my experimental assignment <laughs> course. They made mm-hmm. a podcast. They made a victim memorial. Um, and I made them come and argue for their grade um, as a case file on themselves. <laughs> and, right. and so for all of them, I said, like, like, did you know a lot about this stuff? And they would say, because I, I start with Lizzie Borden. And so... They would say, like, some of the early 20th century stuff they had no clue about. I mean, nobody right. talks about the McKinley assassination, especially not in criminology classes. Um, but then also, like, the later stuff. Like, I knew JFK was assassinated, but I didn't know why. <laughs> or I knew yeah. that I, I I never knew who O.J. Simpson was. Or, like, how? Like, how is that possible? So I know. Have it you is, had... It is- Super crazy that I have very similar experiences. I mean, there are cases, like I mentioned, like Natalie Holloway and, and John Benet Ramsey that seem like everybody pretty much knows going mm-hmm. in what those cases are. But even um, the tower shooting at the University of Texas, Austin, we focus a lot of our school shooting part actually mm-hmm. on that case because nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. And there's this incredible documentary. I don't know if you've seen it called Tower on Netflix. Mm-mm. And it's actually animated, which I think is a good thing in the sense that it is a very, very, you know, grisly mass shooting yeah. and would be very hard to teach that documentary if it had been live action. Yeah. But um, it's animated. And a couple students said the animation took them a while to kind of sink in. But mm-hmm. it's such an incredible case in the sense that it's one of the first school shootings and yet very few people talk about it. And it follows a police officer throughout the day, it follows one of the victims who is pregnant, who is shot and she played dead because Mm. she was afraid that if she got up, that she would be shot again. So this woman runs up to her and lays down on the ground next to her to try to keep her conscious. This pregnant woman who had been shot. The story itself is just absolutely incredible. Um, but yet my students have never heard of that case. Um, Murder Mayhem in Media is a case that, or is a class they teach right now. It's super mm-hmm. cool, and I would say like the Ted Bundys and the you know BTK killer. Some mm-hmm. of those things come very easily to them, and they recognize them. But I have one student that I think she might be living a media-free life. <laughs> like she is the only student who said they did not know what Love Is Blind is, which is uh-huh. just a new reality show that came out yeah and ever all of my students are obsessing over it and to be honest i think it's very interesting i love talking to my students about pop culture but uh-huh. um so she, it's always fascinating to watch her because she really doesn't know she didn't know about the slender man case for example like she had never heard about the slender man stabbing uh, whereas a lot of my other students had so mm-hmm. it is definitely interesting to see the the differences and and she had said before oh i've never listened to a podcast so there's definitely different levels of people's engagement with media <laughs> yeah i've definitely had that i've had i've had to walk students through it um you know this is stitcher or this is itunes and, mm-hmm. and uh it's okay you don't have to pay for anything um yeah the name the name of that crime history class is murder monsters and mayhem so oh, we're okay. on the same yeah, so kind of similar. <laughs> 
<laughs> on the same wavelength. Um, I like pro alliteration. Um, I'm also glad that like, so I assume your students are obsessed with Ted Bundy and like the Zach Efron yes, thing. They are. I mean, I think <laughs> you, so this is not like, a video podcast, but please, uh, Daniel rolled her eyes. <laughs> like you know, your face is going to freeze so that way. <laughs> I, I mean, it's funny because I'm rolling my eyes, yet was I the first person to watch that Zac Efron movie? Yes, I was, you know? So I recognize that I also watch everything and consume everything about that case, but we talk about that, um, what were we, oh, so the show You on Netflix, mm-hmm. the one, I don't know if you've seen it, Andy, about um, essentially what is a domestic a, a violent relationship. It's about a man who cyber stalks this girl and meets her because he's stalking her, knows where she's going to be and they fall in love. And the relationship is super messed up on multiple levels. I Mm -hmm. think there's definitely a project in there too about cyber stalking in the media. And my students love that show. They love it and they root for him because, and they even will admit, like one of my students said, I love Joe, which is the main character, the one who stalks this girl. He's like, she's like, I know it's the wrong thing to say, but I just love him, you know? And the the actor who plays him has actually come out on Twitter and in other places and said, you know, I think this show is about what white men can get away with. Yeah. Like he says that himself. Uh-huh. And so... That, like, just blows my mind. I'm like, it's so true, though. And it's very similar to Ted Bundy in the sense that they're, you know, what is viewed as a a traditional good-looking guy. Uh And we know it's Ted Bundy. I think that played a big role in in women's comfort around him. Mm -hmm. Um, And their walls not being up right away. Yeah. Yeah, so, my, my students yeah, had they love They love Ted Bundy. I honestly don't focus on him very much in my class because I don't want to say it's, it's territory it's already been covered but it kind of has been with a lot of them they've already made up their minds about it Mm -hmm. and i like to go into more of the cases that they might not have explored as in depth yeah yeah um so i have them do a a case study in there too just to kind of get some of their serial killer Mm -hmm. uh obsessions out of the way that's an assignment i've done more often um because like i'm tired of trying to ignore it and i don't know there's a lot of reasons why um, right. But for the Ted Bundy one specifically, and the, and the Zac Efron show, um, that my murder class got into a big debate about whether or not it was good that that show was even made, um, because right. half the class is like Zac Efron was great and we loved the show, and then there was maybe less than half who were like, you know, that's true, but <laughs> is it not also true that by um, perpetuating like a lot of the Bundy mythology that you're kind of indoctrinating a new generation of young women? Um, to think that what Ted Bundy did was okay. Right. And I was like, oh, wow, I was not expecting yeah. that today. <laughs> well, and we, we actually, so last time I taught the class was when that trailer came out about mm-hmm. the movie, and the way the trailer was framed, it was like he was a rock star. Like, it was not at all that he was a murderer, and... Mm-hmm. It was just very strange. Like I had, he, I'm glad that the actual film I did not feel was that was in that vein. But the mm-hmm. trailer was very problematic, and I was like, if this movie is from this point of view, we're going to have major issues. But mm-hmm. I don't think it actually was. Um, 
as much like that as the trailer was. I don't know if you remember the trailer, but it honestly just made him look like a hot rock star. And yeah. I'm like, this is extremely problematic for so many reasons. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I do think that it's interesting because he's been, you know, he's been gone for quite a while now, but there's still this huge interest in him. I think part of it too is his escapes, I think, yes. or something that the students are really interested by and interested in and how could people be so dumb kind of thing like to let him be alone in that library uh-huh. i think it was with the window open and um yeah so i think there's some of that stuff too is just how could they get this so mm-hmm. wrong because the reality is is after he escaped he went on to kill more people so that is a part of the story that is really really sad and the my issue is that so many of these just don't focus on the victims at all yeah. it's like these nameless bodies and that's so problematic for those families. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure with the Bundy case, I can imagine that the victim's families just want it to be over, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's just keeps relitigating itself over and over again. And people um, talking about his case. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that would probably be the hardest part. Yeah. Honestly, it's just for the victim's families is seeing this, play out over and over again. Um, There was just, I can't remember if it's Amazon or Hulu, but there was just the new documentary about the women who loved Bundy and a big focus on his girlfriend and his girlfriend's daughter, the one that he was dating for a big part of the crime spree and who later, you know, called police and said, I think that my boyfriend is who you're looking for. And I actually thought that documentary was one of the best I've seen on the, on his case because Mm -hmm. it focuses on, the actual victims and the victims' families. And I hadn't seen that much time be given to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of skirt around it, but the the girlfriend's daughter mentions that Ted, Ted Bundy had assaulted her when she was a girl. And I feel like that's never discussed ever. Like, I had never even heard that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just this, you know, there really was this... Uh, terror that went across the whole country so i really actually thought they did a good job of bringing it back to the victims and not just you know making him into this rock star yeah uh, it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about a minute ago you know people who are who are profiting and like very gleefully profiting on all this death and destruction ted bunny shouldn't right. be depicted as like one of the later I don't know, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street types of movies, right? Like, right. where at that point in those movies, you're kind of cheering for Freddy and Jason. Like, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be cheering for Ted Bundy. And it's yeah. it's interesting, too, because, I mean, you probably have a lot of similar students as I do as far as, like, the kids who have wanted to be a cop since they were five years old. Right. Who, who then start kind of cheering for Ted Bundy and, and really admire the escapes and everything. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I just... I've never been able to, like just sit them down and say like how do you reconcile (laughs) this you you are this law and order this diehard law and order you know blue lives matter kid and yet (laughs) you're cheering for the serial killer like i don't i don't understand that um right yeah i think that's i mean it's definitely something i deal with too something with police officers in general that i tell them is I always make sure to tell them how much writing is involved with that job because so many of them don't realize that, you know, your every day is not going to be out fighting the bad guys and doing all the things you see in law and order. Mm -hmm. There's a paper trail and all of those things that have to be maintained. And that's 
I, I mean, inevitably I get the question of why are we writing so much? <laughs> and it's like, well, you have to be a good writer to be a good police officer and you have to be a good communicator in general. So yeah. that's something I, I kind of joke with them that I feel like part of my job is to just be very, very honest. And I've had several students mm -hmm. tell me, um, I just had one recently say, you know, I, I became a probation officer. You mentioned in, in corrections about the issues that probation officers face with high caseloads and things like that. And she's like, you know, I'm glad that you told me what it was really going to look like. Um, and I'm glad she said that. It was very validating because in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to put anyone off from these extremely important jobs. But at the same time, I don't want anybody to be going into a job and having this very rose colored version of what it's going to be like mm -hmm. and not last in it. Cause that's not helpful to people either if there's high turnover in those jobs. So yeah. yeah. So that's something I struggle with just in general is, is the honesty about it while also still wanting these critical thinkers, these analytical people to go out and be in our, in our field is so important. Yeah. No, uh, be honest with them. <laughs> be honest. Yeah. That's where I've been. Um, because, uh, like, another thing is, too, that's really important is that you don't want... <sighs> I had a student once who wanted to be a cop. Um, and I said, well, why do you want to be a cop? I always ask them, especially if they're my advisees, like, why do you want to do this? And he was like, eh, it's a job I can get. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, no. This yeah. is not... Like, if you're just looking for a job, like, go to the hardware store. Go to go to Lowe's and, and get a right. job there. You know, you don't... This is not something where you should just be, like, punching your time card and and showing up. No. And he... That student um, left after that semester. He was not... A, he was not a college guy. It was not working for him. Um, yeah. He had no interests besides just hunting and fishing. That was it. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I think there's you also. I don't know if you have this, but uh, the legacies like the people whose parents or grandparents were cops, and then so it just seems like the next step for them. Mm -hmm. And that's always challenging because anything that you say about policing, they you know they bring it to their own lives and their own families. So mm -hmm. you got to be really careful about not alienating anyone on day one of the class. Oh, yeah, I but, used to be, I'm not anymore. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, I'm still, like I said, I'm still like early days. Yeah. So I still think about all these things, but I've honestly found that the students seem to appreciate the honesty. Mm -hmm. um, if not when I'm being honest later, when they realize like, Oh, okay. There was a reason that she kind of worded it this way or yeah. told us there was going to be a lot of writing. I just, I don't know. I think it's, flat out irresponsible, honestly, to push people into jobs that they don't understand what actually goes on. And, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about for policing, for example, the strain on the relationships or the partnerships that many of them have. And, mm -hmm. um, this culture of like, it can be difficult to ask for help if you want to go to a counselor and, and how some police departments have started to say, you know, we really want you guys to go once a month mm -hmm. and that type of thing. But, how it can be hard in a group of what's usually all men to mm -hmm. talk about things like that. And because they have a gun as part of their job, they never want to give the appearance of not being stable. So it's this like yeah. push and pull. So we talk about all that stuff. And I think students are always a little bit surprised at, at some of the underlying mechanisms at play there. Mm -hmm. um, not the least of which is for like police officers of color. I mean, that's a whole other level of, of things to talk about. I had, I talk to them about this all the time in my master's pro or in my PhD program, 
we had a class that was cross-listed with the master's program. So there were several master's students in that class with us. And I remember this officer, uh, a black police officer said that he, to his family, they constantly made comments about how you could be a cop. And um, he said that on the cop side, people would ask him, so what does your family think about you being a cop? And he said there was like this constant tension between the two groups. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so interesting. And the fact that he felt safe enough to share that was really interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like I, I mean, I'm not familiar with the literature, but I'm I'm hoping yeah. that there's like a growing body of um, I, mean, I did a little bit of stuff when I, I wrote a gender and crime book and I wanted it to cover the entire system. Um, right. So I, I did some stuff on um, just like gender issues and policing, but I, I'm hoping that there's like a growing body of mm-hmm. mental health and policing types of stuff. I had students last year, I have a class where they write letters to legislators about policy issues that they're interested in. Um, mm-hmm. And that class picked police um, well-being as one of their issues um, to my chagrin, knowing that they like that they were wanting it to be um you know, letters arguing for greater protections for police and that they were going to find like some hard truths about this job that they wanted to have that they weren't going to be happy about. And that's exactly how it played out. Right. When we, we talked about how much time they spend writing and how much time is just sitting around and how much time is like collecting fines and fees and, and like all of the fines and fees that law enforcement have to collect and uh, the mental health stuff and, and the disregard for mental health issues and those students were really mad <laughs> about it. And yeah. Fl- it's like they were flabbergasted like that this was something that was going on. And I think it's because of just how positively the police are always portrayed in the media. Right. For sure. Even, even like the, those characters that are, are supposed to be like the dark cop or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's just that he's like an alcoholic <laughs> and, right. and you're still cheering for mad. him. I'm like, I think about that is, the the archetypes we had for policing and so many of them are so problematic yet you know we got film franchises following some federal law enforcement officers you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so i don't i don't know like i I think it would be interesting to see how like those portrayals like how how do students filter the stuff that they see how do they how do they pick and choose what what stereotypes about law enforcement do they want to internalize and what do they want to model like an identity kind of thing i don't know for sure we've got enough work already (laughs) (laughs) um so i'm gonna stop it there um thank you so much for taking your time today hey andy wilzak again so I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show, and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Tracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts, and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology-based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So, again, please rate and review the show. 
tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.